Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It's a pleasure to have with me in studio Alan Ruskin, co-head of Deutsche Bank's foreign exchange research team on a morning when there is so much to talk about. Uh, Alan, let's be, begin with oil. Uh, in your most recent note, you talk about the degree to which this is really the big macro driver uh, right now. Yes, it, it, it is at the center point. Keep in mind that uh, we did obviously see oil fall very, very sharply. It was so important for all the other macro drivers. And then the rebound now is almost the reverse effect. So uh, you know, I think the main channels in which this is working is uh, higher oil prices, higher break-even rates, and then expectations that uh, um, the likes of Treasury yields and other global bond yields will move higher. We've seen that start to quieten down a little bit over the last few days. So there's a question as to whether oil sticks around here or does it go up, say, another $10 a barrel uh, um, I don't think people are thinking much more than $10 a barrel. And giving us some some sense of whether or not that might happen is this November 30th meeting in Vienna, this this OPEC meeting, from what we've heard today from the, the Saudi oil minister, what we've heard over these last few weeks. What's your sense of the likelihood that we will get, uh, at the very least, a freeze and, and perhaps cuts here in production? Yeah, so look, I'm not an oil analyst. Yes, so let's, uh, let's, yeah. let's, let's full disclosure here. But... Uh, I think what you have is at least uh, stability with a tendency towards moving to, towards the upper end of the range. So, you know, if the range is $40 a barrel to perhaps as high as $60 a barrel, then, um, you know, I think we edge a little bit higher, at least while there's speculation that OPEC and some big non-OPEC countries really uh, do curtail uh, supply. The problem I think they face is really that on the non-OPEC side, and notably on the U.S. side, uh, supply will kick in again, and you'll see those rig count numbers going up quite sharply, really, uh, as soon as oil does go up. So uh, oil prices do go up. I want to ask you more here about the, the relationship between oil and the dollar. First, I'll say the Bloomberg surveillance brought to you by Invesco. Investing isn't about achieving average. It's about achieving goals. Learn how Invesco's high conviction approach can help at Invesco.com slash high conviction. I want to bring in uh, Francine Lacqua from London, uh, pulling a, yo, doing yeoman's work here on, on the heels of uh, surveillance television, joining me from, from London morning. this morning. Good morning, Fran. We sent Tom home because he lost his voice, and so you get me. I'm so sorry. Kicking and screaming out of the building, I'm sure. <laughs> Alan, if you look at, so we had those Morgan Stanley report, right, and they cut down in trading. Some analysts, I guess, will question whether they cut back down too much. Then you have crude, as David was talking about, and you're have this China story. Again, we've seen so many movements uh, from currencies, Brexit, non-Brexit, U.S. presidential elections. What will be the next impetus for, for big currency moves? Yes, um, I think uh, right now the focus is really on treasury yields and uh, whether we are seeing some sort of shift in regime. As we were talking about a little bit earlier, oil could be one of the catalysts for higher interest rates, at least at the back end of the curve. But there's a greater chatter that relates to what central banks actually want for the yield curve. So um, it's clear that the Bank of Japan and perhaps the ECB 
uh, certainly wants a steeper yield curve to support the financial sector. Um, whether that but, translates to the U.S. is another question. I'm a little bit more right. skeptical that it does translate to the U.S. Are we really seeing inflation, Alan? So Treasuries gained a little bit, right? We, we saw a core inflation gauge rising less than expected in September. I can't figure out when we see real inflation. I'm not talking about the U.K., which is a whole other problem with Brexit. No, I think uh, inflation has got a lot of uh, global inertia still built into it, a huge amount of spare capacity in the system. Uh, actually, not just in the international side of things, but the CAPU numbers, the capacity utilization numbers in the U.S. are very, very low, remarkably low in the context of a central bank that might be tightening. So, look, I, I think at least on the goods inflation side, there's very low inflation. On the services sector side, there's something there. There's, there's definitely been something. There's a little, little, little bit of creep. And... Uh, uh, you know, I think in aggregate, uh, will the Fed eventually hit their target over, say, a two-year period? I think uh, that's their, some, you know, that's what they expect, and I think that's not unreasonable. Let me get your sense of what we heard from uh, the vice chair of the Federal Reserve on Monday. Maybe put that in a continuum with what we heard from Janet Yellen uh, on Friday. She talking about running things a bit hot. Uh, he having what was a fairly academic discussion here about productivity and what is driving rates down. What did you make of those two speeches uh, in concert with each other? Yeah. Um, look, I think they've got you know subtle differences uh, of opinion, really, uh, in so much as I think there still is uh, a little bit more emphasis on the idea that low for long does create some potential financial problems, financial instability in the long haul, really, in a sense. And so nudging rates up a little bit won't do much harm. At the same time, uh, waiting a little bit won't do too much harm either on the goods inflation side and, and on inflation side as well. So it's very subtle, really, in a way. It in some ways speaks to the idea that central banks don't matter as much as we might think. What did you make of the, the portion of Stan Fisher's speech in, when he in which he talked about inflation targeting? Uh, he, he rather forcefully addressing uh, critics who say perhaps it should be reevaluated, perhaps it should be uh, brought up. He's saying, you know, if we can't get to two, I would be talking about three or, or a number higher. Uh, what, what did you make of that portion in particular? Well, I think you know, for central banks to shift on, on, on a target like this, you know, and it's been entrenched really for the better part of, really, you know, in, in, in the likes of the United States for what forty odd years. Um, I think that would be to really have people rethink the you know the structure and the model kind of thing. So uh, I think that's that, that's one thing. I think raising the inflation target also has its problems. Mm. Although having an inflation target at you know close to two percent is proving problematic as well right. in the current environment. So. But, uh, Alan, this is how markets are interpreting it, right? A, a lot of people are saying maybe because of what we heard from Janet Yellen talking about a high-pressure economy, and what we also heard from Mark Carney, who in the aftermath of, of Brexit is saying he will look through faster price gains, means that they're they're slightly changing their inflation target. Now you may think that they should, but are they? Uh, well, I think Carney's in a special situation. So you've had an exchange rate shock, and it's much easier to say, look, an exchange rate shock is a one-off shock, as it were, and it's going to work, work its way through the system over the next, say, uh, 18 months to two or even three years. And uh, we, look, the markets are probably going to look past that. Um, and the underlying inflation, X, the exchange rate shock, might well be well-behaved. So I think Carney's in that, in that particular situation. The U.S. is, uh, you know, in a, in in a very different set of circumstance. I think the idea in, in the U.S. is, look, if we go slightly above 
the inflation target, uh, that will not be you know, too disruptive, uh, is, is the premise. I think they're probably wrong on that um, to the extent Why? that... Well, I think if uh, inflation does start to nudge above target and start, you know, we start to see the core PC deflator moving even in the low twos, um, this bond market is, is not priced for that scenario. And if you do see a major bond market sell-off, and, you know, some people think there's a bond bubble there, uh, but if you see a major bond market sell-off, it's going to be usually disruptive uh, for the U.S. economy. And, yes, real rates might not actually go up because they'll just be catching up, uh, you know, nominal rates will just be catching up with inflation. But nonetheless, nominal rates matter a great deal. And uh, if the bond market starts selling off sharply, you can you know, rest assured, I think the equity market's going to have a hard time as well. Alan, we've seen the, the dollar weaken a little bit against uh, the 10 major currencies this morning. When you look at the, the Bloomberg dollar spot uh, index, I, I, was, man, I said I was going to ask you here about the, the role of the, the dollar and, and oil right now. What are you seeing there? Yeah, I think uh, it, it's uh, circular to some extent. Yeah. So traditionally, you see a stronger dollar really associated with uh, weaker uh, oil prices and weaker commodity prices, just because you know these commodity prices are priced in dollars. So um, you know that's the the sort of traditional one-sided relationship. The flip side of that, and and the one we're kind of focusing on a little bit more right now, is uh, as oil prices go higher, and if they go still higher, um, what effect does that have on the bond market and then the knock-on effect to, uh, obviously, the dollar? I think the, the issue here is if Treasury yields do bump up significantly, say the 10-year yield goes to 2%, um, that's you know, not a huge move, sure. uh, but in the context of where we're at, it's a, it's a decent-sized uh, move, then I think you're in a circumstance where uh, the dollar will actually benefit uh, to some degree, certainly versus the commodity currencies and the EM currencies, because we'll go a little bit risk off until we stabilize the, and, and on the bond market side. David Gura here in New York with Francine Lacqua in London, a transatlantic version of Bloomberg surveillance this morning, recapping the news from Morgan Stanley this morning. Third quarter net revenues of $8.9 billion. Fixed income trading revenue almost tripling from a year ago to $1.5 billion dollars. And that's where I want to start with Allison Williams, senior U.S. bank analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, who joins me here uh, in New York. Allison, this story, this fixed story uh, continues here with, with Morgan Stanley. Yeah, so we, we've had, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, now every single bank beating and really sort of going out with a bang with Morgan Stanley having a, a huge beat versus the $1 billion estimate. And, and bearing in mind that $1 billion is, is about in line with management targets. So after they restructured the business, uh, the most restructuring, the most recent restructuring was in the fourth quarter of last year when they cut 25% of the front office staff. They had said that they wanted to target roughly $4 billion in annual revenue. That's about a billion a quarter. That's about what um, analysts surveyed by Bloomberg News had been expecting from Morgan Stanley. So obviously, this is a very big number. We've been talking a lot about restructuring. We certainly talked about it in the context of Goldman Sachs yesterday, the, the reduction in headcount head that we've seen uh, there. Uh, Morgan Stanley has its project streamlined. Uh, what did we learn today about the efficacy of that so far? So still going through the numbers, but it does look like they are making um, progress on that on, on, on the overall basis. Uh, the other important pre-tax margin is the margin within their wealth management business. That's a key metric. Their goal is uh, a 23 to 25% margin. They got 23% this quarter. So we're still going through just to see if there were any one-timers, if that's a, a true organic 
recurring margin, but that is another positive for the company. All right, Allison, thank you for joining us again here as the bank earnings season rolls on. Uh, that's Allison Williams there, senior U.S. bank analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Fran? Yeah, David, we were talking a little bit about monetary policy, about inflation targets, about uh, what a lot of these central banks are facing. We're back with Alan Ruskin from Deutsche Bank. He's global co-head of foreign exchange research. And, you know, Alan, I was, I'm torn. I don't know whether I should ask you about yen, because people are concerned about exactly what Governor Crota is trying to do, capping that 10-year yield. We had the story today about Japan's three largest lenders selling a record amount of yen bonds, or whether I should ask you about China and actually what the end game for Remnimbi is. Amongst those those two stories, what could scupper the markets more? Right now, I think uh, China's still probably uh, more interesting. So uh, China, I think, has been going through something of a stealth devaluation, uh, effectively letting its uh, trade-weighted index uh, weaken. The market, I think, has taken this on board quite nicely, uh, to the relief of everybody, I think, or should be to the relief of everybody. And uh, uh, we're seeing, you know, for example, equity markets not respond in the same way to Chinese currency weakness as we've seen before. But I think uh, you will see ongoing uh, Chinese currency weakness on an opportunistic basis. So uh, when China makes a decision and, 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 and sees that the markets are being well behaved uh, in response to a weaker currency, they'll let their currency actually weaken. Uh, yuan halting, right, this year's longest run of losses. Again, as we had data today showing the nation's economy stabilizing. Do we believe those figures? Yes, I think we do believe the figures uh, in a very broad sense uh, in terms of, you know, is growth got a six handle? Well, that's probably as good an estimate as any. Um, I think the issue you have is the breakdown behind those numbers. So obviously, uh, public investment seems to be a main ingredient in, in terms of keeping growth going. And then more recently, of course, you've had this explosion of mortgage lending and you know, private-related investment has been concentrated in you know, things housing-related. And uh, I think what you have here is the building up of even bigger problems and even bigger so-called credit gap uh, that I think will manifest itself probably more in 2018, given that uh, 2017 doesn't really fit with the uh, political calendar. Alan, I'm going to close here by asking you about uh, the dollar peso we're seeing it at 1863. This has been an incredible proxy here for what we've been seeing in, in the U.S. presidential election. Aside from that, aside of it being kind of neat to watch rise and fall as we see the polling change here in the U.S., what, do you, what, do you, what can you learn from what the peso is doing at this point? Yeah, I would just say that uh, the peso's uh, problems are a lot deeper than Donald Trump, that uh, the unresponsiveness of the trade balance to the weakness in the peso has been quite remarkable in that sense. And I think what you're also seeing in terms of the trading is that the peso will tend to weaken a lot more on, say, Donald Trump uh, coming up on the polls than will actually strengthen on, say, a Hillary victory at this point in time. So the upside, as far as the peso is concerned, uh, that means the downside on dollar peso. Sure. Uh, but the upside as far as the peso is concerned is quite limited, I think, uh, even if the politics works in its favor. All right. We'll be watching the debate tonight, of course. Alan Ruskin, thank you very much for joining us here uh, in studio. Alan Ruskin, co-head of foreign exchange research uh, at Deutsche Bank, based here uh, in New York. Of course, that debate tonight at 9 o'clock Wall Street time. Donald Trump uh, and Hillary Clinton taking the stage. Then we will have coverage before and after here on Bloomberg Radio, also uh, on Bloomberg Television.
pleasure to have Sebastian Malby here uh, in studio with us today. He is a, a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, author of a new book called The Man Who Knew the Life and Times of Alan Greenspan, the culmination of five years of, of research, interviews uh, with Alan Greenspan and others. And thank you very much for being here. Appreciate it. Really great to be with you. Let me ask you, first of all, I was watching the, the president's news conference yesterday, and, and something that came up was uh, him commenting on the limits of monetary policy right now. This is a, a constant through line that we've heard uh, over the last many months here, um, that monetary policy can't do everything. There has to be fiscal policy uh, in concert with it. We're hearing that from central bank governors. We're hearing that from uh, finance chiefs. We're hearing it from, from heads of state. Looking back at when Alan Greenspan was Fed chair, was this something that he had to reckon with, the, the limits of monetary policy? Well, he did have to li- reckon at the beginning with the limits of the Fed's independence and the willingness of politicians to beat up on the Fed. This happened very much in the George H.W. Bush administration at the beginning of Greenspan's tenure, to the point that actually the uh, the budget chief in the White House, Richard Darman, was going around Washington and whispering, this Fed chief, 65 years old, lives by himself, calls his mother every day. Doesn't this remind you of Hitchcock's psycho? <laughs> so, I mean, there was, there was nasty pressure on the Fed. And the fact that then the Fed, this stopped and the Fed became independent, is a testament to Greenspan's political skills. And I think that, you know, modern day experts who are under pressure, whether it's central bankers or other experts, they need to learn a lesson from Alan Greenspan, which is you've got to marry the expertise with political savvy and take the fight back to the politicians. Mm. Sebastian, what do you mean? He called his mother every day. He's Italian, right? That's the only thing we can take out from that. No, he's Jewish. He's Jewish. (laughs) There you go. Same thing. Um, Look, this is a man that was full of contradiction. First of all, congratulations on a really fine biography. He was considered a rock star. And yet, it was under his watch almost that, you know, the, the crisis happened, the financial crisis. Could he have done anything to avert it? Yes. I mean, you cannot be the most influential economist in the world presiding over the global financial system, have it blow up and say, sorry, it wasn't my, my fault. I mean, clearly, he got something wrong. Now, the interesting thing is, I believe the mistake he made is not what most people would say. Most people would say, gee, you know, interest rates were about right because uh, inflation was on target. It was really on the regulatory side that there was a mess. In my view, and I did uh, Freedom of Information Act requests and so forth to, to verify this, The Fed actually did try to do something about subprime mortgages. In 2001, it did pass new rules. The problem is regulation, especially in the United States, is porous. It leaks. There are so many different agencies trying to do regulation. There's an alphabet soup out there of different bodies. Mm. So regulation doesn't work, and therefore I believe... Greenspan should have been willing to raise interest rates to fight the bubble. We'll talk more about this uh, after a break here in just a second. But I wanted to ask you about the degree to which he he thinks of his position in history. He looks back on decisions he made vis-a-vis regulation, what he could have done differently. Is he somebody who uh, does think back on on the past and and maybe play out some counterfactuals? The fascinating thing is, you know, I would go see him, um, you know, a lot. I lost count after 70 hours of sitting in his office. And every time he would want to speak about the present or the future, and I would have to force him, because I'm doing a biography, right? I want him to talk about the past, but he's saying, what do you think about Brexit? Is that going to, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> See, he, he, you know, we, we've spoken with him recently here on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. I mean, he still is very actively engaged uh, in, in these policy discussions that are taking place. He's a wonderfully open and curious mind, and I think that's still true at 90 years old. We are joined in studio by Sebastian Malby, the author of a fine new biography here of Alan, Alan Greenspan called The Man Who Knew the Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. And Sebastian, I wanted to ask you about 
Fed communication. Uh, Alan Greenspan leaves and we see Ben Bernanke on 60 Minutes. We watch Wrapped uh, every couple of months when the Fed chair delivers a news conference. Uh, the vice chair, Stan Fisher, spoke at the Economic Club of New York this week uh, to a crowd of, of hundreds. What does Alan Greenspan make of this movement toward more transparency, openness, whatever you'd like to call it? Well, when Alan Greenspan was chairman, first of all, he spoke less. But also when he did speak, sometimes it was highly and deliberately confusing. I mean, he was compared once to a bespectacled sea squid <laughs> who's sensing danger, right? He emits black ink and then glides away silently. So, you know, he didn't believe in quite as much communication. I actually think he got it right. I think the cacophony that you hear now is not constructive because what it does, it dilutes the message from the Fed. And as a result, today, you've got attacks on the Fed from the right, from the left. Is it too tight? Is it too loose? And Janet Yellen is not really shaping that debate because there are too many different people speaking on behalf of the Fed. That is not something that Alan Greenspan would have permitted. Yeah, I'll have you comment on that maybe from, from your perspective here. It seems like there's been a sort of half move toward openness. Uh, this is still There's still some opacity there. Uh, it, it, it creates a kind of game where we're constantly guessing, even as we do have more information. Just the, I guess the quality of that information is debatable. I think the fact is that uh, the more you talk, in a way, the less you can communicate. I mean, people have to then interpret too many statements by too many governors, right? In Greenspan's era, if one of his fellow governors went out and made a speech that got too much attention, Greenspan told him, stop it, hmm. stop it. I want to be the messenger. And if there's all of us talking at once, that just confuses the markets. It doesn't help. But Sebastian, I mean, we pay some of the market participants, you know, the hedge funds are paid handsomely to understand these markets. I mean, what the Fed is becoming is just a little bit like the Bank of England and the MPC here, where you have different views. And actually, it's up to the markets to understand the strength of the economy. Well, you know, when um, the taper tantrum occurred in 2013, Ben Bernanke himself was, I think, totally surprised and confused by how the markets reacted to what he said. Uh, and that just shows you that uh, however much you pay people to interpret what the central bank is doing, if the central bank's statements are open to multiple interpretations, you're going to get these volatile swings. You know, Every time the Fed is about to meet, maybe it's going to exit low rates. You see this enormous volatility build up. I just think you had much less volatility in the great moderation. And the great moderation was under the great Alan Greenspan. Um, you know, there were other stuff going on too. But I think Greenspan was the master of being the empowered guru in Washington. Right, and but times have changed also, haven't they? I, uh, you know, yesterday we extensively talked about this opinion piece in The Telegraph by William Hague, who is foreign secretary, former foreign secretary in the UK. And if you look at the headline, he says, central bankers have collectively lost the plot. They must raise interest rates or face their doom. I mean, someone as powerful as Alan Greenspan in today's context would, would be eaten alive. No, I think Alan Greenspan would probably eat his critics alive. I mean, the truth is that Greenspan, Greenspan had unbelievably uh, good sense of how to manipulate Washington. He was a Machiavellian par excellence. He had contacts in the media such that if you picked a fight in public with Alan Greenspan, you should not be surprised if in the next two weeks uh, one of the major newspapers had a front-page story saying that you were wrong. I mean, he had such good relations with people in the Senate that you could perhaps not be confirmed to the job you wanted. Uh, Greenspan knew how to operate in a way that I think other central bankers today just cannot match him. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating point. I think about our last two Fed uh, chairs, uh, Ben Bernanke and, and Janet Yellen. Their backgrounds are very different from, from Alan Greenspan's. 
as you were writing this, as you were thinking about this, do you have any sort of conclusion about what equips somebody best for a job like that? Yes, well, one of the revelations about Alan Greenspan and his background is that he was super political. I mean, you know, people might vaguely know that he had uh, advised Richard Nixon in the 60s. He was not just the economic advisor. He was the polling analyst. And then if you go forward, you know, he serves in the Ford administration. He's the kind of person who sneaks into the White House with his allies on the weekend to rewrite the president's speech because one of his bureaucratic adversaries has done something he didn't like. You know, Henry Kissinger at one point. Henry Kissinger is supposed to be the master uh, bureaucratic infighter. And a story appears in the New York Times attacking Kissinger. So Kissinger says, where the heck did this come from to his deputy? And the deputy says, oh, well, Alan Greenspan must have planted that. Because Greenspan, I mean, you know, he was just brilliant politically. And I think that is relevant to why he did so well at the Fed. When he was attacked by politicians, he took the fight to them. He understood power. He knew how to wield it. And frankly, experts today who are under attack on the defensive, they could learn a lot from the example of Alan Greenspan. How would he deal with Donald Trump? I think he would, you know, make it, um, you know, he would feed the press uh, with very smart arguments as to why what Trump was doing was ridiculous. And the negative commentary on Trump, which has already been quite considerable, uh, would have been even more. He would have gone to uh, people in the Senate who were, you know, who were used to getting advice from Greenspan, and he would have, you know, told them that uh, Trump was ruining their party, and he would have isolated Trump, you know, completely. And I think that, and you know, he might also have said things in public. And remember, at the, the height of Alan Greenspan's power, there were Alan Greenspan T-shirts, there were Alan Greenspan <laughs> dolls, you know, there, was, there were cartoons of him sort of dressed up as Superman. I mean, he was the maestro. Somebody compared him to Prozac because he lifted the mood of Americans, right? So if he had gone out in public and said, you know, something negative about what Trump was saying, it would have had an enormous effect uh, on Trump's standing and credibility. I mean, John McCain, in one of the presidential primary debates uh, in 2000, you know, made the point that even if Greenspan were to die, you would still want him as Fed chairman. You would dress him up, put dark glasses on the guy, and keep him in office, because that was the nature of Greenspan's prestige. I have a disclaimer. I do have a T-shirt, not of Greenspan, but of <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right, that's it. Enough, I, I need to say that, Sebastian. <laughs> do you think that there's a central banker that I mean, gets as close as possible mm. as Greenspan? It seems they're all getting under so much pressure. Mark Carney now being politicized, uh, you know, uh, Chair Yellen being uh, the markets don't seem to believe her. You have Draghi that's basically battling with 27 states. And then you have Governor Kuroda who's losing credibility by the day. You know, I think uh, Janet Yellen is the furthest from the Greenspan model because she's such an economist, economist, a sort of technocrat, rather cautious. I'd say that Mark Carney has that political flair. Um, you know, he obviously has his own political ambitions in Canada. Um, and before Justin Trudeau became the leader there, you know, there's talk of him becoming uh, the leader of Canada. And I think that shows you that Carney does have that political side to him, which is a good thing. His, his disadvantage is that uh, in Britain, he's not embedded uh, in the long term. I mean, he came uh, three or four years ago, whereas Greenspan, by the time he became Fed chairman, he had already had two decades in Washington of building up relationships. And the other one is Mario Draghi. I think Mario Draghi does have some of that political talent. 
uh, and is very kind of deeply embedded in the Eurozone. And when he made that statement in 2012, you know, the whole Eurozone was falling apart, peripheral yields were going crazy, and, and, and uh, Draghi stood up and said, you know, we're going to fix this, we will do what it takes, and believe me, it will, you know, do enough. It's almost like Clint Eastwood, you know, <laughs> curling his lip and snarling at the hedge funds, I'm badder than you are, right? <laughs> uh, and Draghi, I think, that w- he won that battle, and that is another reminder, Draghi had that Greenspan magic. And that's what we need more of today. Very quickly here, just about uh, 30 seconds uh, left. I, I wonder uh, what he makes of the, the policy toolkit such as it exists now. Is it something he could have envisioned? You mentioned you talked to him for 70 plus hours um, and, and wrestled with some of these modern day issues. What does he make of, of what's in that toolbox right now? I think he's highly skeptical of um, the modern toolbox. He thinks that if you create that much money in the end, there's going to be inflation. He hasn't been proved right yet, but his view is that this is playing with fire. Sebastian Malby, thank you very much for, for joining us here, uh, based in London, here in New York with us today. He's the author of a new book, The Life, uh, the Man Who Knew the Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. He's a senior fellow in economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. I'm joined now in studio by Alan Kruger. He is, of course, professor of economics at Princeton University, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama administration, now an informal advisor to the Hillary Clinton campaign. I certainly want to talk about the campaign uh, and the debate, but let me mind your expertise here uh, in labor economics for a minute first, Alan. And we had the last jobs report, uh, 156,000 jobs added, the employment rate of, of 5%. I was struck by uh, how that played in the press. Uh, I was looking back at the the headlines when when those numbers came out. The New York Times saying the U.S. economy showing resilience added 156,000 jobs last month. USA Today saying disappointing 156,000 jobs added in September. Help us process that number and and put it into some context for us. Well, I think the big picture is the labor market is in much better shape than it was five years ago, eight years ago. And we're now seeing uh, the benefits of the recovery. We're seeing wage growth uh, pick up. We're seeing the gains be more broadly shared. And I think going forward with the unemployment rate down to 5%, the expectation should be for around 150,000 jobs added. There uh, is not that big a pool of workers left looking for work compared to where we were a few years ago. So, Alan, we're going to see a rate hike in December, right? I mean, if everything's so strong, it would be the wrong signal not to hike in December. Well, I think it's likely uh, that they'll hike in December, but, you know, a lot of data will come in between now and then. Uh, So uh, nothing uh, happens in economics with 100 percent certainty. Right. But the trend so far points to a strong or stronger U.S. economy than what it was six months ago. I think there's no question that the U.S. economy has been resilient and is uh, on stronger footing. At the same time, the inflation rate, while picking up, is still below the 2 percent target. Uh, and there's a lot of weakness in the rest of the world, which the uh, FOMC will pay attention to. An issue in this campaign has been the, the disenfranchised worker or the disenfranchised American who wants to work or, or work more. It's certainly something that Donald Trump talks about. It's certainly something that 
Hillary Clinton talks about perhaps with a little more difficulty here as uh, the natural successor to, to, to President Obama. What explains that? What explains the sentiment that we're seeing surrounding that right now, given the fact that we are getting stronger numbers and we're seeing the, the unemployment rate where it is? Well, over the last year, the labor force participation rate actually has recovered about a half a percentage point, which, frankly, I was not expecting. Uh, the reason why I wasn't expecting it is that the main reason we've seen labor force decline is simply because we're an older population. More than half of the decline in labor force participation in the U.S. is simply the result of the baby boom reaching retirement age. Um, and those who uh, criticize the economy under President Obama are missing the fact that this was all expected before he came to office. The Council of Economic Advisors under President Bush was anticipating that labor force participation would be falling uh, because of increasing retirements from the baby boom generation. We saw uh, the length of the work week tick up a little bit in the last report. Uh, when you look at wage gain, we're at 2.6% growth over the, over the last uh, 12 months. Uh, you talked about sort of where the, the, the overall rate should be, the, the number of jobs added should be. When you look at, at those things, when you look at wages, when you look at the length of the work week, are we, are we nearing a ceiling there, do you think? I don't know if it's a ceiling. I think we're getting close to the classical definition of full employment. Wage growth is up 2.8% this year. Last year, we saw the uh, sharpest decline in poverty since the late 1990s, and we saw the fastest growth in real median household income since the 1960s. So I think those are signs that the labor market is getting tight. Should we worry, or should the Fed worry about a stronger dollar? Um, I think the Fed anticipates that if the U.S. economy continues to recover the way they uh, uh, have been forecasting, and if they raise rates, then the dollar probably will uh, move up. Now, some of that's already, I think, built into the markets, uh, but I'm sure that that's part of their forecasts. Right. So they, they can withstand it, right? As long as it doesn't – is there an optimum level, for example, for your dollar? Well, I, th I think uh, more broadly – they're balancing lots of competing forces, and they're looking for the sweet spot where we can maintain full employment and stable prices. And so far, you know, I wouldn't second guess what they've done. I mean, it's kind of remarkable progress that we've made. When, when I first started to work for President Obama in 2009, we were losing 800,000 jobs a month. And now we're a little disappointed because we only added 156,000. Um, and uh, last year we added almost 3 million over the course of the year. So I think we're in a much stronger position and also much stronger compared to the rest of the world. Help me with the definition here of full employment. You, you hear Stan Fisher talk about where we are. We're nearing full employment in, in his estimation. Uh, we talk a lot about the, the maybe fracturing unanimity of the, the Federal Reserve Board. But is, is there a, a clear definition of what full employment is, what the Fed wants to see now when it comes to employment? I think that, uh, as, you, as you said, the uh, Fed is not of one mind. And different governors and regional presidents have different views. Uh, some would like to see the job market run very hot, put some upward pressure uh, on wages and uh, see that push up. Uh, prices. Others are concerned that inflation get, could get above the 2% target. Uh, my own view is that we've been below the 2% target for so long, I think the Fed has been right to be cautious uh, and to move at a, at a slow pace. Uh, I think the economy could withstand uh, the inflation rate uh, getting to the 2% target or above it for a little while because it was below it for so long. You sympathetic to, to Stan Fisher's argument there not to change that target at this point, to, to raise it, leave it where it is? Well, I think they're stuck with the 2% target um, because they'd lose a lot of credibility if they were to change it. On the other hand, the way I interpret the target 
is that it's an average. Mm. Uh, 2% is an average. The fact that we've been at 1%, 1.5% for four years means to make the average of 2%, we could be at 3% for a few years. Now, that's my interpretation. I would like to hear a little more articulation from, from the Fed about how they interpret their target. And Stan Fisher saying to the, uh, the, the, the Economic Club of New York earlier this week, indeed, that the, the Fed thinks we are close to that, uh, that 2%. A target, Alan, we are here a few hours away from the third and, and final presidential debate. Uh, we can talk about Hillary Clinton's plans in specific here in a moment, but I wonder uh, what your sense is of the degree to which these candidates have engaged with economic issues. I think back to the last presidential debate, it had that town hall forum, and um, you know who knows how representative that, that group is of, of the American electorate, but uh, the economy was not front and center, at least in the questions there. Well, I think that uh, certainly was the case. Uh, Secretary Clinton, I can tell you, has focused very much on economic issues facing the country. She's uh, developed very detailed plans about her vision for the future, about how to improve the work-life balance, how to have uh, an economy that works for everyone. Uh, I've been involved in the development of some of those plans, and I can tell you it was reminiscent of my work in the government. It was that level of detail. And uh, the other side seems uh, really to be flying by the seat of their pants. They uh, don't have specifics on what they would do uh, to help middle-class families, um, what they would do to invest in infrastructure. Uh, so I think the contrast couldn't be stronger. You know, you, you've been in Washington. You've seen the, the, the policy engine grind slowly as it's been grinding over these, these last few years. We were talking with Stan Collender about the prospects for divided government here in, in, the, in the next year. How would a President Hillary Clinton deal with Congress? Again, we hear the, the clarion call from central bankers, from, from uh, financial policymakers calling for more fiscal policy. It has been difficult, to say the least, for the Obama administration to get more done. Uh, are you optimistic that with a new president something would be possible? How is it going to be possible? I think there would be a great opportunity for Hillary Clinton if she were to become president. Uh, she's worked across the aisle before. She's demonstrated that uh, she can make principled compromises. Uh, I think that there's scope for uh, improving our corporate tax system, for investing more in infrastructure, for improving our work-life balance. I think it can be done in a fiscally responsible way. But you need Congress. Well, I think uh, if Congress remains divided or Paul Ryan remains Speaker of the House, I still think there's an opportunity. Uh, Ryan has expressed uh, interest in a lot of uh, issues um, which uh, I think could lead to uh, um, a package, uh, you know, for example, expanding their income tax credit uh, to be more generous to uh, individuals without dependent children, reforming the corporate tax system. Uh, so I think that there is scope for a lot of progress, uh, even if Congress remains divided. Ellen, let's go back to the economic policies of Hillary Clinton. And we all read the, you know, the policies. We read some of the leaflets, and they're, um, you know, they, they seem okay on paper. But how many new initiatives can a Clinton administration actually push through? For example, on infrastructure, you need to finance this spending. Where's the money coming from? Uh, I actually uh, helped to make some suggestions for her infrastructure plan, so I'm intimately familiar with it. Um, it's a fiscally responsible plan. It's paid for with corporate tax reform. It would increase investment in infrastructure, uh, I think, by about $500 billion over the first five years. Uh, part of it uh, would come from a infrastructure investment bank, which would be seeded by uh, funds from the government, but would leverage private capital and would benefit, I think, from the judgment of private sector investors. Uh, she would emphasize uh, repairing... I'm sorry, on the tax, so corporate income tax would go up. Is that no. right? 
No. Uh, you know, if you take a look at our corporate tax system, it is so inefficient. Uh, companies have so much money deferred abroad, which they owe federal income tax on, that there's plenty of scope for uh, uh, lowering our corporate tax rate, reducing some of the loopholes, uh, improving the way we uh, tax international income. Uh, and using some of the revenue that that generates to invest in infrastructure. Right. And you and you believe that she will be able to reach an agreement that's acceptable to both House Republicans and members of her own party? Oh, I think there's an agreement to be had. If, if you look at the proposal that Congressman David Camp had when he was chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, it wasn't too far off of the Treasury Department proposal. So uh, I'm hoping that the election will free up a little bit of space for uh, Congress to make some progress on these issues. Let's talk trade for a second here. Uh, one of our reporters just sat down with uh, Ambassador Mike Froman, the U.S. Trade Representative, talked about the prospects for getting the Trans-Pacific Partnership voted on uh, by Congress here by, by the end of President Obama's term. Of course, Hillary Clinton has said she doesn't support the, the, the partnership as it stands right now. What is wrong with it as she, as she sees it? When she looks at that policy, what's missing? What needs to be changed? Uh, of course, your trade, a, a, a very big part of the economic backdrop to this campaign. I can't speak sure. for the candidate uh, on uh, what you would need to see, but I can tell you as an economist, trade agreements certainly have the potential to increase the size of the pie, but they affect who gets which slice of the pie. And the gains from globalization have not been shared broadly enough. I think uh, too many workers get dislocated as a result of trade, and we don't do enough to help them make a transition to other sectors to help them make up for lost income. That brings me to my, my next question here, which is about economic inclusion. Uh, you certainly saw it being talked about at the IMF World Bank meetings a few weeks ago. Uh, it seems like any big event, any big gathering of economists now, it's going to be something that, that comes up. And, and I wonder why it seems like um, this is happening now. I think you could, I think you could criticize the, the field, perhaps, the, the policy field for coming to this too late. But there are a lot of people who feel disenfranchised. And, and what tangibly can policymakers do to, to, to make economic gains more inclusive? Well, first of all, the rise in inequality that we've seen in the U.S. started in the early 1980s, so this is not a new phenomenon. And the only time in the last 35 years where we've seen the bottom gain as much as the top, if not more than the top, was in the late 1990s and then last year. So I think it's clear that a strong macroeconomy helps, but policy can also help. Uh, for example, raising the minimum wage, mm -hmm. expanding the earned income tax credit. I think investing in infrastructure would, would help uh, possibly bring back some people who have left the labor force. Uh, so uh, there's a lot that could be done, uh, but I think economic forces have been pulling us apart, and I think some corporate decisions uh, have been pulling us apart. Um, we've seen uh, too much of the profit go uh, to the uh, very top in the corporations. And one of the things that Secretary Clinton proposed that I'm a big fan of is more profit sharing uh, for, for employees and having tax incentives to encourage profit sharing, which could also increase loyalty and raise productivity. Uh, so I think there's a lot that both the private sector and the government can do to create a more inclusive society. All right, Alan Kruger, thank you very much for joining us here today in New York. That's Alan Kruger. He's a professor of economics at Princeton University, of course, former chair of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, now an informal advisor. He's an advisor an awful lot of times here to the Hillary Clinton campaign for president. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.